If you're not already there, go ahead and join me in the book of John. And we're actually going to close chapter five today. And, and if you recall last week, Jesus has kind of moved us into an impromptu court scene. And using that, that imagery, Jesus has given us his opening argument, so to speak, throughout the chapter of John 5. But last week, specifically, when we get into this section, he starts to present his expert witnesses. And this is why in this section, this last section of John 5, you're going to see the word witness or testify. It's, it's one's a noun, one's a verb, same root word. You're going to see that 11 times in this section, verses 31 through 47. And this is why Jesus is putting forth his witnesses. Now, remember, Remember under Jewish law, two or three witnesses had to agree to actually convict somebody in a courtroom. It was on the basis of two to three valid witnesses. Jesus is going to provide four witnesses to his identity here. So a super abundance of evidence and witness and testimony as to who he is, what he's all about. Also, if you count Jesus's own testimony, there's five witnesses. But as we said last week, Testifying for yourself isn't always the strongest legal argument. So he at least provides four. Okay. It's over this two to three. And those four were, if you remember last week, were Jesus himself, God the Father, John the Baptist, and then Jesus's works. This week, we're going to consider that fifth and final witness. Okay. And this was to be the slam dunk witness. Okay. This is the star witness. This is the one that the, the other side should be afraid of. And it's the witness of the scriptures. It's the witness of the Old Testament. This witness should have been a non-debatable witness. It's black and white. It's objective. It's not subject to emotions. It's not subject to perceptions. It was designed to be straight, hard, provable fact, if you will. And this is what Jesus is going to present. Now, we don't have their response. I, this is one of those scenarios. I wish there was a verse 48 because I would just love to see how they responded. My guess is they didn't respond well based on the historical account. These were the same people who in a couple of years are going to crucify Jesus. I don't think they responded very well, but they should have. And what Jesus is going to say here as we get into verse 39 is he's going to say, you know, check it out for yourself. Go to the word of God and see if it doesn't testify or give witness of who I am and what I'm all about. And this is what he says in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. And one of those things that's really interesting about that first phrase is I didn't even realize it until I started studying through this passage. You search the scriptures is actually a command. Jesus is telling them, search the scriptures. They had searched the scriptures because that's what they did for a living. But he's telling them again, right now, all of you search the scriptures. And this word search is an interesting word because it means to learn something by careful investigation or searching. The idea is that you're, you're searching, you're turning over rocks, you're, you know, looking under things, you're looking behind things. This is the opposite. Ladies, don't say amen too loud to this. This is the opposite of men in your home that can't find the ketchup because they won't simply move the milk carton, right? I mean, I joke about that. And how many times do I still do that to my wife? I'm like, where's the ketchup? Where's the Chick-fil-A sauce? She's like, did you move the Tupperware container and just look right behind? And, and, and you know what? This is what the religious leaders of Jesus's day were. They wouldn't even lift a finger to move the milk carton, to look behind, to search, to get under things, to actually try to understand what's going on. And so as a final appeal to this acceptable witness, Jesus says, you know what? Dig into the scriptures, lift the rocks, turn them over, look behind them. Because what you're going to find is I am the Messiah. I'm not saying anything wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong by healing this man at the pool. I'm the Messiah. And you will see that if you'll just dig under there. And you know, you only offer that level of transparency and encouragement if what? You're confident that you're right. You're confident that if they will simply search and dig, they'll find that what you're saying is true. And this is where Jesus is standing. He wanted them to look further. He wanted them to look deeper. But one of the things that we find about this group is in them, Jesus said, or because in them, you think you have eternal life. And this is actually one of the reasons Jesus says, look, guys, dig in. You say you love it. You spend time in it. You're reading it all the time, but dig in and see because they had this high value for the word of God. But one of the things that we're going to see is although they were serious students of the word of God, they had a misconception. They thought study itself 
was going to bring them eternal life, that they would get eternal life through studious effort of study. Know anybody like that today? Know a few people like that today? Where they think if they, if they're just cracking the Greek, you know, breaking down the Greek, studying in Hebrew, reading it, reading the Old Testament right to left, you know, that's how Hebrew's written, that they're doing something special to earn eternal life. Now, Give these Jews credit. They did have some confusing teaching in their day. In fact, let me bring up some of the rabbinical teaching. I'll just bring up two quotes. One rabbi said, he who has acquired the words of the law has acquired for himself the life of the world to come. Another rabbi said, great is the law for it gives to those who practice it life in this world and in the world to come. So you can see why they were confused, but they're like a man on a seashore. The boat has left the dock They've missed the boat. And one of the things that they've missed is the same thing that spiritually intellectual people miss today in the study of theology, trying to dive into the minutia. And it's more simple than this. In fact, it's Sunday school, children's Sunday school, simple. And here it is. This is what Jesus is going to say. Jesus equals eternal life. A person is where you find eternal life. They thought by just cracking open this the scroll at the time and just reading through it and memorizing large portions of it, that they were somehow going to earn or merit eternal life. Eternal life is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. And this is what these men did not understand. And so Jesus is eternal life. They had missed that a person is eternal life. This is why later in John's writing in first John, he's going to say it, he who has the son, not the son outside, which has been brutal, by the way, this past week. The son of God, he who has the son of God has what? Has life. See, religion always wants to take the spotlight of Jesus Christ. The Bible wants the spotlight on Jesus Christ because he has life in himself. We just read that actually in John 5. He's got life in himself. He is life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the way to the life. He's the life. He is life himself. And this is what they were missing. And Jesus is going to say, and these are they which testify of me. You see that word are there, it's present tense. They are testifying of me right now. (laughs) The, The implication is if you will just crack the scroll, you're going to see. You're going to see that they testify of me. They're giving witness of me right now. And this should have been so clear because the entire theme of the Old Testament pointed to the Messiah. Every Levitical type spoke of Jesus Christ. Every prophet gave witness to him. In fact, even a, even a Jewish unbelieving historian understood that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus Christ. Look at this quote. Some of you guys know who Josephus is, but Jewish historian, first century Jewish historian wrote this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, which by the way, that was one of Jesus's witnesses, right? The works that he did. A teacher of such men has received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. Now, And then watch what Josephus writes. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. Isn't that amazing? This is an unsaved Jewish historian, and he even can recognize that the Old Testament talked about Jesus Christ, pointed him. In fact, go read Isaiah 53 to anybody in the world. Don't tell them it's in the Old Testament. Don't tell them it's in Isaiah. Just say, I want to read something from the scriptures. Read the passage and say, who's this talking about? And I would venture to say almost 90% of the people, oh, that's Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happens when they do that on the streets of Jerusalem where Isaiah 53 is actually a forbidden chapter in the synagogues today. When they read that chapter, you know, there's a video out there on YouTube. It says, who does this sound like? Does this sound like anybody in history? And they're like, oh yeah, Jesus. Of course it sounds like Jesus because it is him. It's pointing directly to him. By the way, Jesus said it a little bit better than Josephus. This is to the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He said to them, oh foolish ones, it's slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. 
He's talking about the Old Testament there. He expounded the Old Testament, showing how it pointed to Jesus. And we've said this a number of times, but understand Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for you, his resurrection was not God's plan B when everything else failed. It has always been God's plan A. He has always been God's solution to sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God had that in his mind from eternity past. And we see it borne out all throughout the old scriptures, the, the Old Testament scriptures. But then in verse 40, Jesus is gonna explain why they won't believe in him. And he's gonna tell them in verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Not willing, this, this word means to, to will, to wish, to desire. It implies active volition and purpose. The, the verb is often used in the New Testament to describe uh, making a free will choice. Now, for those of you that are looking at that, you're like, of course, that's what it means, not willing. But I only say that because there are theological persuasions that have developed that say that you don't have active volition. You can't make a free will choice on your own. This clearly says that they're not coming to him because they're choosing not to come to him. Very important to see they're not willing to come to him. In fact, right now, again, it's active voice. It's not something that's acting on them, preventing them from not choosing him, but they're willingly making that decision not to come to Jesus Christ. And one of the things you see is by implication, they could have changed their mind. In fact, what was Jesus hoping would change their mind? The word of God, the Old Testament scriptures. He was, he was actually hoping they would change their mind and then actively choose to believe in him in lieu of this Bible study. And so I only say that to say that the, the Bible doesn't teach that they, they could not come to Jesus, but that they could and they chose not to. That's a, there's difference there. They had the free will ability to choose, but they chose not to. We're going to get into a lot more detail on this in John chapter 6, because this is where it comes up a lot. And we'll look at kind of what needs to happen, if, if you will, from a divine side for someone to choose to believe in Christ. But it's not that they don't have the ability to. Okay, it's not that they, they can, it's just that they have chosen not to come to him. And then we've got this phrase, coming to him which is an interesting phrase because in this context, I believe it's a synonym for believing in him. This is what he's been talking about. And so the idea is that you're coming to him to trust in him to do for you something you could not do for himself, uh, for yourself. And what we're going to see here is, is the study of the scriptures, being an, an Old Testament scholar is not enough to get you into heaven. This is why, if you remember John 3, what did he tell Nicodemus? The You know, Nicodemus was everything on a stick. I mean, he was everything that a Jewish person would ever want to be in terms of righteous living and in terms of probably favor with God. And Jesus told Nicodemus, it's not good enough. You've got to be born again. Because religious religious success or religious understanding or religious study itself doesn't merit heaven. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And so they're coming to him, but they had refused to do this. They refused to come to Jesus in humility and trust not only him, but his evaluation of what he just did on the Sabbath, right? This is all in the context of him healing this infirm man at the pool, uh, which we learned about earlier in John chapter five. Now, one of the things you'll see in the book of John is he uses many different illustrations for faith in this book. And part of the reason for that, I think, is sometimes if you've ever... As a math teacher, I remember having this one math teacher one year. My, and she, she was the worst math teacher I ever had. And I won't even name her name. Not that she's watching, but I won't name her name. I'll just keep an honor to her name. But you know, you would have a question. And those of you, you're going to recognize this because you've had teachers like this too. You have a question and she would try to explain the problem. And the way she explained it didn't make sense. And so you say, I still don't understand it. And then she would explain it the exact same way a second time. And I said, I still don't understand it. She would explain it the, the exact same way the third time. I'm like, forget it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm just not going to get it. Like, I need her to adjust to me. I need her to hit me at a different angle. Try a, try a new path, right? So I try to remember that when I was teaching math years ago to do stuff like that. But this is what I think John is doing. And I think obviously Jesus, the master teacher, as John is recording, he uses all of these different illustrations for faith. I think in case one clicks with somebody, Right earlier in John chapter four, he said, you drink living water, right? He who drinks of me, that sounds kind of weird. It's going to get even weirder in John six. He's going to say, he who eats my body, eats my flesh and drinks my blood. You're like, oh, 
cannibalism, right? I mean, this is how many people would take that. But he's using illustrations for faith. This is another one, coming to him. Because if you are coming to someone to do for you what you realize you cannot do for yourself, that requires humility and it requires trust. And that's why it's a great illustration for faith in Jesus Christ. This was the last thing on Jesus's audience's mind. And why would they come to him? Notice what the result would be that they may have life. In essence, they, they've rejected Jesus Christ for their own approach to eternity. In essence, they've said, you know, when I get before God, I don't need Jesus. I got what I need. I'm going to leave him over there. I don't need him. It's a very serious thing to say, especially when, when all of the eggs in God's basket is in the Jesus basket. It's a very dangerous place to be is apart from Jesus Christ. And so they did this willingly. That's the point. Jesus is saying, you guys are willingly rejecting me. And all of these witnesses are testifying of me and you are, you've already got your mind made up. You're rejecting every witness that I could put before you. And they actually are clearly testifying of me. One of the things we see in the Bible, and don't miss this point, God doesn't stutter with this particular decision. There are consequences to believing in Jesus Christ or rejecting him. Don't kid yourself. You know, we, we often, I'll, I'll talk to people and say, have you ever gotten angry before with somebody? Well, I've never gotten angry before, but I've, you know, I've gotten a little heated with, and I'm like, you've gotten angry. And they're like, what? why are you trying to justify yourself, right? It's like, no, you've gotten angry. That's, that's what we call it. And I'm just here to tell you, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no middle ground. You've rejected him. There's, there's two positions to hold according to the Bible. Either you trust in him or you've rejected him. There's nothing in between. You can't say, well, I'm not going to trust him for salvation, but I think Jesus is a good guy. I mean, I think he should be listened to, and I think he's got good teaching. The Bible is very clear. You're either in one of two camps. The Bible is also clear that there are predictable consequences depending on your response. If you believe in him, if you trust in him for salvation, the Bible says you have eternal life. The Bible says you'll never face the death penalty. The Bible says your sins have been forgiven. That's all a free gift based on the payment Jesus made for you. That's a known consequence. It's a positive consequence. But if you reject Jesus Christ and you reject his work for you and you say, I don't need it, then one day you're going to appear before God in your own righteousness. And let me encourage you, you will never measure up. You will never measure up on your own. And even if you're having a good day today and you don't believe me, wait until you have a bad day and then rewatch this because we never will measure up. Because God is not just going to judge us on the basis of what we've done externally that other people have seen. That's how a lot of criminals get off at court, right? Not enough witnesses, not enough good evidence against them. Their DNA wasn't at the scene. They're let off, whatever. God is going to judge us and evaluate it on the basis of our thoughts and the intents of our heart. Even when we didn't have the means to execute something that we wanted to do that was evil. And don't say you don't have those days because when someone cuts you off on the road, you have had murderous thoughts at times, I guarantee. Maybe not in that scenario, but it's some other scenario. The good news is no one has to pay for those sins if you'll trust in the substitute who paid for them for you. That's the good news of the gospel. So this is what Jesus is trying to tell him. You come to me, you have life, but you're willingly choosing to reject me. Now, interesting. Verse 41 doesn't seem to kind of fit in the flow, if, if you ask me. But I think it does if we, if we kind of look at it a little bit more closely. Verse 41 says, I do not receive honor from men. And I think what he's basically saying is, I'm not beholden to man's praise. I'm not looking for men's praise here. Now, I think that's very important to see in the context. Let's look at some of the words here. But to receive means to take in whatever manner. The idea that right now Jesus doesn't take or receive any type of honor of man. By the way, why, why would that even be a good philosophy in life? Have you ever met somebody that changes their mind on a dime? It's a little frustrating. You know, I, had, I used to have a friend tell me, a, a, a pastor friend, he said, you know, um, he would, in church, there'd be someone that says, oh, we love you, pastor. We love your teaching. You're, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. You're the best teacher since the apostle Paul or whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, really complimentary stuff. And then he said, and it would be that exact person that leaves the church years from now and then tries to completely annihilate his character. And the way he put it is, I go from the fourth member of the Trinity to the Antichrist overnight. And I say that to say people's opinions change. 
It's okay. It's not that you have to have the same opinion on somebody your whole life. I'm just saying people's opinions change. Jesus wasn't beholden to that. He wasn't beholden to, to man's praise. And I think it's very important to see. And, and, and he doesn't receive uh, or he doesn't want to take that type of honor from men. The idea is to think or to recognize it meant having a favorable opinion. So was it like Jesus was saying the things that he's saying because they didn't have a favorable opinion of him? He wasn't a, a middle school girl reacting in anger and spite on this crowd because they weren't receiving him, that they were willingly rejecting him. He wasn't reacting in anger. And the idea is he's not beholden to their praise. His feelings aren't hurt. He's not taking their criticism wrong. That He's trying to let them know that he is objectively telling them the truth. He's not just reacting in emotion, as is what I think he's saying here. They probably had misinterpreted his motives. And that's what happens, right? Again, go back to middle school. I would tell my friends, yeah, I like this girl over there. That girl right there, I like her. And then he's like, well, let me go talk to her. And, and she said, well, she, she doesn't like me. And then I told my friend, oh, not her. I don't like her either. I was, I was talking about that girl over there, right? It's like this protection mechanism that humans naturally have. Jesus is saying, I'm not just protecting myself. I'm not just upset with you because of your response and telling you all these hard things. I'm trying to tell you the truth. I'm trying to give you proof. And so I think they may have misinterpreted it, his motives, but notice in the next verse, he is not going to misinterpret their motives. He's going to call them out on the carpet exactly what's going on in their world and in their lives. In verse 42, he says this, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. And he's going to use this word, no, it's uh, there's a couple of words in the Greek for no, but this one has the idea of coming to know over a process of time, observation, a learning, if you will, uh, about them. And it's used in the perfect tense. The idea is there's a knowledge in the past with ongoing results in the present. Now, how had Jesus come to know this audience? Well, largely due to their response to his life, his teaching, his ministry, his works. He's come to know what's going on in the hearts and minds of his audience. And there's something that he specifically calls out here. And, and if you recall, uh, we've said this a couple times, but Jesus throughout this, this dialogue, this monologue with this group, he keeps doubling down. He doesn't back off. He's pushing, he's pushing, he's pushing. He's saying some difficult things. This is another one because he says, I know that you do not have the love of God in you. And this is one of the things that Jesus had observed by watching them. And the reason he knew this was due to their response to his truth, to the truth about his identity, their lack of response to the truth about his identity. They weren't responding to any of the divinely ordained witnesses. These are all witnesses that God had established to testify of who he was, and they weren't responding to it. And by implication, because of that, they didn't love God. Because you typically listen to somebody that you love. You typically believe what somebody that you love says to you. In this case, they weren't doing that. So Jesus goes on to say, by the way, I know you don't have the love of God in you. And he's going to tell them he's his father's representative on earth. And they're going to reject him, even though he's the father's representative. And so in verse 43, we read, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. To come in the Father's name indicates that Jesus came in the full authority of the Father with his full support and direction. This is true, by the way, of every ambassador that the United States sends out to another country. They are there under the full authority and full support of the President of the United States. Now, what would happen if an ambassador to another country was mistreated, was uh, hurt or harmed? That would be viewed as a direct affront to the president of the United States and to this nation. It's the same concept here. Jesus is the representative of the father. He had the full backing of God, the father. This was the reason they should have accepted his testimony. Because when you reject someone's ambassador, you're rejecting the source that sent the ambassador. You see how Jesus is, is, again, he's, he's pushing. He's trying to challenge their thinking because ultimately they think they're all right with God. And they're actually standing in rejection of God because they're rejecting his representative. They're rejecting all of these witnesses. You know, to come in the father's name just inseparably links the name and the work of the son with the name and work of the father. They're one. They're completely unified. Jesus has been trying to convince them of that throughout his opening argument, so to speak. And one of the things, oftentimes you get in the Bible, you're like, what does the name mean? You know, you'll, you'll see verses, those who believe on the name of the son of God. 
Does that just mean you have to believe his name is Jesus? Is that kind of what that is teaching or is it something more? Well, I think it's a little bit something more because the name to the Hebrew mind represented the person's attributes, represented the person's character, his inner man, if you will, his work, everything the person is known for. That's what the name, that concept, the name represents. Jesus has come in the Father's name, representing everything that God the Father says. This is why in John 1, 14 and 18, Jesus says what? No one, or, or John writes, no one has seen the Father, but the Son does what? Declares him to us. He completely represents him fully. We saw that in John chapter 1. And so Jesus should have been received by his audience simply in the name of the Father. Did he do the things the Father said he would do? Yes, check. Did he say the things the Father said he would say? Yes, check. They should have received him accordingly. However, though, in contrast, this same group, although they wouldn't receive Jesus, notice what he goes on to say in verse 43. He says that if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And so again, coming in their own name means on the basis of his own declaration or reputation or works accomplished, they would receive him. Now, this is completely insane because if basically what Jesus is saying, if a man shows up tomorrow and says, I'm rabbi so-and-so and I've got THM and PhD and THD all next to my name, multiple PhDs next to my name, this group would receive that person. This group would receive them based on their own testimony. I studied under rabbi so-and-so. Oh, they would receive him based on that testimony. They would just receive him based on his own name, coming in his own authority. And we also know from history that the Jewish people have flirted with, unfortunately, and received many false messiahs over the years. In fact, when you try to count how many, it's, it's, it's well into the hundreds of false messiahs that they've received over the years. And one day they're going to receive the Antichrist of Daniel 9 and Revelation 13. And that's tragic. That's tragic. In fact, by the way, do you know how the devil is going to deceive the people in that day when the Antichrist is on the scene? Through signs and wonders that are going to look legit. In fact, they're going to be so convincing that the scripture said that some of the believers are even tempted by the validity of those signs. The point is this, is that they would receive certain signs in the future of false Christ, but the, the actual works that were prophesied about in the Old Testament about the Messiah, they, they wouldn't take those into consideration. They were just like, oh, Jesus, you got to stop that, you know, because you healed on the Sabbath. And they, they had this false understanding of what was going on. And so they rejected his assertion that he had repped the Father, that he was a representative of the Father. What was the reason? Again, Jesus is going to show us that he knows them. And this is what we get into in verse 44. They were focused on the wrong things. Jesus is going to point this out. This, he's going to say, guys, this is why you're missing the boat. This is why the boat's left the dock. You don't understand what the scriptures are trying to show you. They're focused on the wrong things. Verse 44 says, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? This, this word can is a very, I know it's a small word, but it's a very important word in this particular phrase because it's the idea that you have, you have the ability, you have the power, and it typically reflects intrinsic power or ability. How can you believe? And it might be better said, how could it even be possible to believe in me when you meet the following two conditions? See, there were two conditions that were in the way of them believing Jesus Christ. Two conditions that he's going to name here that, that honestly, if they would shed these two conditions, they would be free to believe what he said. But this is what was holding them back. You can see it in the text. The first thing is when you receive honor from one another. And so this describes a, a man-centered motivation of receiving praise and reputation from one another. Jesus describes these Pharisees. Who are these people? They were, the light, they were the kind that liked to walk in the market and they loved when someone came up to them and said, oh, rabbi, thank you so much for what you shared in synagogue. You are the greatest rabbi in the world. Oh, here, let's get out of the way. Rabbi so-and-so is coming through. Oh, let's show him honor. They love that kind of stuff. They love the praise of men. They lived for that. And so what would they do to, to basically extract more praise? They wouldn't go pray on their own. They would do what? They'd get in the busiest corner. They'd wait for everyone. And they'd be like, dear father, you know, and, and just start praying and trying to get attention from anybody. There's an old funny story of D.L. Moody, 
who was preaching some crusade somewhere, and he would often try to involve local pastors so that, so that if someone did trust Christ, they had a local pastor there, maybe get plugged into the church. But these local pastors, many of them have never, had never preached in, a, in front of a crowd or spoken in front of a crowd this big. So they, they got excited. This is like going to the Super Bowl, you know, and like <laughs> getting a play called for them, you know, and they're like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to go for a touchdown. I'm going to make something out of this. I remember one time Deal Moody was, was on the stage. He was sitting, a, a pastor was getting up to pray and the pastor just went on and on and on in his prayer. And he was just trying to wax eloquent. And in the back of the room, Deal Moody had noticed earlier a group of young people, three or four of them had come into the back row. And they looked, they didn't look like the typical person that came to one of those meetings. He, he was glad to see them, but they didn't look like the typical person. Well, by the time this guy was, was getting into his third, fourth, fifth minute of prayer, they kind of were looking at each other. Deal Moody's poking out of his eye. They're looking at each other. They get up to leave. And Deal Moody just gets up and he goes, while our brother finishes his prayer, let's go ahead and get started. And the four unsaved people got at such a kick out of that, they sat back down to listen to him. And a couple of them got saved that night. These are the type of men, though, that they loved receiving honor from other people. They love looking good to other people. By the way, having the praise of man is okay when the one another group is biblically minded. Because typically the only time you're going to receive that praise is if you're trusting the Lord, right? So I'm not, it's not always, and, and sometimes it's not, you're not a bull in a china shop. Like, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. They can, you know, whatever. It's not that either. I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't have to be these two extremes, right? But here's what they were doing. Their group was self-centered, self-inflated, self-promoting, performance-oriented, one-upsmanship type of scenario. And if that's the way it is, that's unhealthy. Because even though God loves you, even though God has sent Jesus Christ to die for you, and rise again. The scriptures are not about you. The scriptures are not about me. It's not about my glory or your glory. Ultimately, it's about God's glory. And this is what they were missing. See, life, life's not about you or me. We tend to view our life through the lens of we are the center of the universe. We are the center. This is why we take picture of, of the food that we're eating and post it on social media. Just like you don't care what anyone else is eating, they don't care what you're eating. I'm just, let's start a movement. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the wrong measuring stick, that's the problem. The wrong measuring stick has just gotten pulled out of the drawer when you start to compare yourself to other people and look for other people's praise. You just pulled the wrong measuring stick out of the drawer. Put it back. It's not about what other people think about you. It's about what the God of the universe thinks about you. It's about living life for an audience of one these guys didn't get that. They were living life for the praise of men. The, the, the greatest thing that would ever be said about some of these is, Rabbi so-and-so, you're amazing. Wouldn't you rather have the greatest thing ever said about you is by the creator of the universe when he looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the award that you're looking for. Not what so-and-so thinks of you. And so this is where Jesus's audience were trapped. The second thing that was preventing them from believing in Jesus is they didn't seek the honor that comes only from God. Kind of fits. These two things go together. Seek again means to strive to find it. Serious effort. And see, this is the, the problem with any works-oriented salvation or works-oriented Christian living. It always wants to rob the spotlight from Jesus Christ. It always wants my honor, my glory, what I did what I continue to do, what I'm sacrificing, what I'm committing, what I'm surrendering, what, how I do this, how I do that. And at some point you're like, what about Jesus Christ? I've actually asked people that. What about Jesus Christ? And I think I've shared this before and they'll say, oh yeah, him too. What a slap in the, what a slap in the face of God. God doesn't say him too. God says him only. You, in fact, notice that. You do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. What he's trying to say is the only one whose opinion actually matters, you don't even give a rip about. You care about everyone else's opinion. And this is why you won't believe any of the witnesses that Jesus is putting before you. They won't believe it because they're not looking to God's approval. They're looking around the room, looking to see who's clapping for them, who's, who's cheering them on, who's impressed with them. 
Who cares if people are impressed with you? Are they impressed with your Savior? Get out of the way. Goodness sakes alive. I mean, it ain't about you. In fact, just stick around long enough in their life so they can see you fail because you will. They can see you let them down because you will because you're not perfect. But you know, there's one that will never let them down. There's one that will never fail them. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Get out of the way. These guys were missing the boat, obviously. And by the way, lest you think it can only happen to a self-righteous Pharisee, there's another person it can happen to. Just go home and look in the mirror. That's the other person. That's the only one you need to worry about, by the way. <laughs> don't, be, don't be elbowing somebody. Don't be saying, oh, this message is for him. I wish he, her, I wish she was here today. No, just go look in the mirror. You, you got this in you. I got this in you. The same sin nature that produced this type of unbiblical thinking in the lives of the Pharisees is the same sin nature that indwells every believer. You're capable of just doing this exact same thing in the church. You could be doing this while you're preaching. You could be doing this while you're evangelizing. You could be doing this, doing any act of Christian service that you can possibly imagine. You could be doing it for this wrong motive. And it's just a challenge, I think, to each one of us. But this is where Jesus's audience was. They weren't even making an effort <laughs> to live in a way to receive praise that comes from God. They were more concerned about their reputation with men. By the way, as I mentioned before, both believe here and seek are active voice. I'm, I'm kind of setting us up for chapter six because we're going to get into that a little bit, especially into the monologue section Jesus gets in. It means they had the ability to choose to believe the testimony they had the ability to seek or honor God or the one uh, to seek honor that comes from God alone. And again, why did they not do it? They were filled with unbiblical and self-centered thinking. It distracts. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, you've trusted in Christ for salvation, this type of thinking can destroy your Christian life. It can make you ineffective for the Lord. You know, we need to stop. In fact, Mark was teaching on Colossians 1 this morning. There's a little phrase in there. That, that Paul prays that they would be fruitful in every good work. That's, a, that's an odd statement unless you understand the substance of what he's saying. That means not every good work is fruitful. You know that? That's what's going to be evaluated at the Bema. It's all good works. We need to take our eyes off of the externals, who's applauding us and giving us praise, who's not, and trying to evaluate our fruit and start living life for an audience of one. Whatever you do today, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Whatever you do in the next moment, do it heartily as unto the Lord. If no one's clapping for you, okay, who cares? If everyone's clapping for you, don't read your press clippings. Don't get too excited about yourself. You know, as a, as a lifelong Dallas Cowboy fan, I've watched people read their press clippings and trip on their own saliva. They're drooling all over themselves and they trip on their own saliva. Don't let that be your Christian life. Don't get too hung up on the applause. Don't get too hung up on the gritted teeth, right? When people are against you, put our eyes on the one that matters. That's where it's at. That's what it's all about. Now, Jesus is going to go on here as we close out John chapter five. In these next three verses, he's going to say, I'm not your enemy. I'm not the one that's going to accuse you. I'm trying to show you what the standard is going to be that's going to be used against you. Verse 45 through 47 says this, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. Now it's interesting because what did Jesus just say earlier in John chapter five? He said that he was the one given final judgment by the father. He was going to be the one to judge the entire world. But he gives us further clarity here. He's going to be the judge, but he's not going to be the expert witness against them. You see what he's saying? Somebody else is going to come in and actually accuse you. And then I'm going to have to give judgment based on that evidence. And this is why he says what he says. Uh, don't think that I shall accuse you of the Father. Think it just expresses this subjective mental estimate. See, they think that Jesus is going to try to get them in the future, so to speak. He's like, don't, don't think I'm coming after you. I, I, again, I'm not looking for the praise of man. I'm not, I'm not offended by what you're doing. I'm not hurt in the sense of that I'm lashing back out at you. But don't think that I'm going to accuse you to the Father. 
this word, I shall accuse, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to just define it because we're going to come back to it here. It means to speak openly against or to condemn or to accuse mainly in a legal sense. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to be the one accusing you, but someone is. And I'm just telling you, the one that's accusing you is the one you're trusting in. You imagine going into a courtroom and you think you got somebody on your side. You get into the courtroom and then you find out that it's the opposite attorney's expert witness is the one you were trusting in to bail you out. That's what these people are up against. This is what Jesus is trying to explain to them. By the way, because it's future tense, Jesus is telling them, don't think that I'll be the primary witness against you in the future. Because if they thought Jesus was going to be the primary witness, what would they think at this point? They'd be like, oh, we're, we're home free. Because they didn't think anything of Jesus. They were blowing him off. They were like, if, if, if you're going to concern me. So Jesus steps out. He says, look, Moses is going to accuse you. Moses threw the word of God. And so they actually thought that they were righteous, which is just mind boggling. So in contrast to Jesus accusing them, Jesus says that there's one who will accuse them, the word of God. And I love what one commentator said here. It's very profound. It's very simple and succinct. But he said this, and I think it still applies today. If you reject Jesus, then you're going to get Moses. If you reject Jesus, you're going to get Moses. And that's not a good thing. Because when you look at the Mosaic law, and let me explain that, you're going to get the outcome of the Mosaic law. You're going to get what the law demands of lawbreakers, which is death. And here's the problem when you get Moses. Moses, the law is black and white. There's no grading on the curve. It's relentless. It's unyielding. It's unforgiving. That is what law by definition is designed to do. And this is why in James 2.10, James in clarifying the righteous standard found in the law, this unyielding nature of the law says, you can keep the law in every single point. But if you stumble in one point, it's like you're guilty of them all. This is why in just talking to people about heaven, they'll say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anybody. Well, okay, good, good. I'm glad, you know, it makes me feel a lot better talking to you too here, right? <laughs> I've never killed anybody. Have you ever told a lie? Based on James 2.10, if you've told a lie, you're just as guilty as a murderer. That's what the law brings. So if you reject Jesus, you get Moses. This is what he's telling him here. And the word of God is gonna accuse you. The word of God is, is very clear. It doesn't stutter. It tells you exactly what the righteous standard of God is, which is, by the way, not trying your best. That's trying your best is not God's standard of righteousness. It's perfection. This is why the gospel is such good news. It's the only way you can be provided with a perfect righteousness that God will accept. This is why it's such good news because the word of God, Moses will accuse you. So in contrast to Jesus, Moses would be the one to speak openly or condemn them in a legal sense. In fact, it's, uh, the text says that they, in whom you trust, and normally we would think that's the word faith, but actually um, it, it's the word that's typically translated hope, which means to expect with desire. And, and, and this word uh, basically means to have confident expectation for the future. That's the idea. So who are they trusting in in the future? The very one who's going to show up and accuse them before the courtroom of God. That's who they're hoping in. They're confident in that at some point they're going to be justified, if you will, by Moses. In fact, it's used in the perfect tense, reflecting a completed action with ongoing results. That means as they stand before Jesus, they are probably laughing and snickering in his face saying, if anyone's righteous, it's us. We bring it on, bring Moses on. We'll be okay. Bring the law on. Bring the Old Testament on. We'll be fine. We've got the righteousness needed to get into heaven. I'm a good person. I study the Old Testament scriptures. I've got large amounts of it memorized. I have devoted my life to ministry uh, of the scriptures. I'm going to be fine. Bring Moses on. It's kind of their attitude as they're standing before Jesus. And the tragedy of this is they put their hope in Moses in his writings, and they continue to do so, but they were actually missing the person of whom Moses was writing about in his writings. They're missing it. They're missing that boat. So not only were they hoping and banking their future on the very one that they were, or they were basically banking their future on the very one they weren't listening to, which is crazy. They, 
Listen, they weren't listening to directions, but they said, oh yeah, Moses gave us the directions. We're okay. No, Moses said, take a right, right. No, 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 no. We're okay. We're going to go left. They just weren't, they were, they're banking on the very one who was going to accuse them. They weren't listening to Moses. You know, one of the things that's, that's tragic about that is when you look at the life of Moses, Sometimes it's harder to, to pull it out of the Old Testament. But I think it's a really fascinating passage is at the Mount of Transfiguration. Because in Luke chapter 9, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the mount. Jesus is transfigured. So the, the three disciples are able to see his glory. And then we read this. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory. And if Moses and Elijah show up to speak with Jesus, we'll get to the, the last phrase. You're probably reading ahead like most people, <laughs> most students do. Um, you're probably reading ahead, which is totally fine. What do you think they would talk about? What do you think the primary thing that they would focus on if they had a couple of minutes together? You know, Moses, uh, you know, was Moses like, hey, sorry, I hit that rock. I probably shouldn't have done that. What are they focusing on? Notice what they're focused on. They spoke of his decease which he was about to, notice that word, accomplish at Jerusalem. Not the decease he was about to experience, which he did experience it. It wasn't the decease which people were about to nail him to the cross, which is what he did experience. It's what he would accomplish. You see, there was something that he was going to do to accomplish something. And that's what Moses was focused on in those few minutes with Jesus. Isn't that something? Exactly what his writings would have led them to as well. And so these should have been a natural transition. The Old Testament scripture should have been a natural transition to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. And Jesus uses what's called a first-class condition here. It assumes the factual nature of a statement to make an argument. He's saying basically this. I've got it in the next point. For if you believe Moses, and let's assume that you did in the past, in perfect tense, then you would have been believing me the whole time. You would have had no, that would have been a natural transition if you truly believed Moses. This is what Jesus is saying. And by stating it this way, Jesus actually makes two implications. First implication, if you really believed or been relying upon Moses, then this would have set you up perfectly to transition your faith and reliance upon Jesus. And, 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 and ironically enough, Luke provides a similar argument. If you recall the story uh, of the rich man and Lazarus, and Abraham is talking to the rich man. Notice the same type of argument here in Luke 16. Abraham said to him, remember the rich man wanted Lazarus to go back to his brothers from the grave and to convince them that they needed to trust in Christ, basically. He said to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. See, they have the scriptures. If they don't believe the scriptures, they're not going to even believe if someone rises from the dead. That won't even be convincing because they have trained themselves to reject all of the witnesses. They've trained themselves to only think the way that they want to think. They've trained themselves to reject anything. It's like the person that says, you know, I've got my mind made up. Don't confuse me with the facts, right? We got a lot of people like that in our political spectrum today, don't we? I mean, I won't say what side, but, but you know, we, we have that where their mind is made up. They won't get confused by the facts. This is why Paul later taught this in Galatians. Therefore, the law was our what? Tutor for what purpose? To bring us to Christ. See that natural transition the law was designed to do, point to Christ. If you believe and respond to what's in the law, you see the person that Moses is writing about, the prophets are testifying about. When Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's him. No problem. Let's move this thing down the road there. There's my savior. That's the one I was looking for. And that's how it was designed to work. It was designed to be a natural transition. Now, the second implication Jesus made was this. If you're devoted as devoted to the Old Testament scriptures, as you say you are, then it would have been natural transition to believe Jesus because Moses wrote about him. And this is what they were missing. Moses actually wrote about the coming prophet that they should listen to. Now, I want to, I want to bring up Deuteronomy 18. I want to, I want to tie this in because this is so very important to see. You're going to see a lot of connections here because Moses even told his audience in Deuteronomy 18, if you don't listen to this coming prophet, you're going to face judgment. 
This is what Moses tells them. You need to listen because if you don't, you're going to face judgment. It's the same message that Jesus is giving them here. In fact, if an astute, an astute student of the Old Testament would have picked up that Jesus was talking about Deuteronomy 18. Let me point this out. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. You should listen to him. Skipping down to verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet from you or like you from among your brethren. Notice this. Now notice the connection to John 5 here. And I will put my words in his mouth. Isn't that what Jesus has been saying? The words I speak are whose words? The father's words. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Did Jesus say anything that was outside the father's will or did he only speak what the father gave him command to share? That's exactly what he did. Exactly what Moses said this prophet would do. And then notice this, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words. Notice whose words? I thought the prophet was speaking. It's God the father through the prophet. It's his words that the prophet is sharing and he holds them accountable for rejecting him. If they don't hear my words, which he speaks in my name, whose name did Jesus come in? The Father's name. You see all these connections here to John 5? Notice what it says, I will require it of him. And guess what? Moses will testify against them because Moses told them to listen to this man and they're not listening to him. Moses will testify against them. Finally, Jesus says, you are not who you think you are. Uh, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Jesus is subtle, not so subtle way of telling his audience. They actually don't believe Moses' writings the way they say they do. They're actually not believing the Old Testament scriptures. And one of the things is we see in Jesus' life and his ministry, so, his works were so aligned with the Father. They were in such uh, alignment with the Old Testament scriptures, the heart of God and his redemptive purposes that they should have seen. This just should have been a natural transition from the Old Testament scriptures. And so did, did that speech make a dent in any of their thinking? We don't know. We don't get a response, unfortunately. That would be something to see. My guess is that for many of them, it just inflamed them more upset them more. And so next week, we're going to start in chapter six. What's interesting is when you flip the page in your Bible from John 5, 47 to John 6, 1, we've just fast forwarded six months in time in Jesus's life. We largely skip over this, this uh, extended Galilean ministry that's recorded in all of the other synoptic gospels. And so we'll talk more about that next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I, I do thank you for the Lord Jesus. I am grateful for the witnesses that you've provided. Lord, if there's anyone here today that's not convinced, Lord, we pray that, that they would be convinced, that they would be persuaded that what Jesus did for them is enough to provide their, their eternal acceptance before you, to provide them with eternal life, to provide them with forgiveness of sins. We pray that they would find in Jesus the one that they've been looking for, for everything in their life, but, but most importantly, that they would find in him a substitute savior who died in their place so that they wouldn't have to face that death penalty and provided a righteousness equal to yours in your sight. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and all he accomplished. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.